Hello and welcome back to Creative Health Podcast, where stories and information are shared about the health and well-being benefits of engaging in and experiencing creativity with me, Laura Bailey. Dr. Tola Dabiri is the National Lead for Arts and Culture at the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Tola has worked across the cultural sector since 1995, beginning her career in public libraries and archives. She has also worked at the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, the National Archives and the UK Centre for Carnival Arts. She's developed and managed a number of successful projects, including Carnival in a Box, fundraising for archives for the National Archives and the Carnival Archive Project. Tolla was awarded a PhD from Leeds Beckett University for her research looking at orality and the intangible cultural heritage of British Caribbean Carnival. Tolla is also a consultant in the cultural sector, specialising in project management, equality and inclusion and fundraising. Tolla and I had a fascinating chat about her career in archives and specifically about the history of carnival and how carnival arts is still important today in Caribbean culture. We discussed the role of social prescribing and how that works, along with a Music for Dementia Fund and Tolla's own creative endeavours. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Tolla. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really good to have you here. Thanks for coming on. So we're going to talk about your career in creative health and how you got to doing what you're doing today. And you've had an interesting career journey so far, primarily in archives, heritage and carnival arts, and now leading on arts and culture for the National Social Prescribing Network. Can you tell us where this journey started? How did you first get into the world of libraries and archives? Seems like a very long time ago now. (laughs) (laughs) I started working in libraries really by accident. I've always been a very creative person. I've loved writing, creative writing, painting, drawing, embroidery. So I've always loved being around creative people. But I found myself at a bit of a crossroads at one point and saw an advertisement to um, take part or to enrol on a BA OMS in librarianship at the University of Brighton, as it had just become. And I thought, why not? Because I wasn't really doing anything else. (laughs) And so I did. And it was just a wonderful thing, really. I loved working in libraries. It was very interesting and varied and you could really see that you were helping people. I worked in information to start with, but then I started working in children's services, which was great, and did lots of really interesting projects. At the time I was first working in libraries, there was very little money to support library services, and so you could be very innovative. If you could get the funding from somewhere, then you could do a project or run a programme, which was great, really. So um, I did lots of really interesting things, in particular, a preschool literacy project called Blast Off. I think that's probably the best thing I did. And I really love doing that. And I worked across Brent and Haringey and then Sutton Libraries before I went to work for the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, first of all in the South East and then the council itself, the National Council. And when that ended, again, I think I've just been very lucky in my career. 
somebody said, why don't you apply for this part-time project manager's job, which actually turned out to be full-time, at the UK Centre for Carnival Arts. And as I'd managed an archive service at Sutton Libraries, it was an archive project, so I thought, why not? And that completely, again, transformed my life. I want to come back to this Carnival Archives because this sounds really fascinating. But what was it about archives and heritage that really kind of grabbed you? What was it that was so enjoyable? I love history. And I think the thing about history is the story. It is a a story. There's always sort of like a beginning, middle and end, possibly not an end. But it always gives you information and very often it's a void of discovery. And I find that really fascinating. And I think connecting people with history is really essential because if you, it's that old Marcus Garvey quote, you know, a tree without its roots cannot prosper. We all really need to understand history, but obviously where we are at the moment, there's a lot of contention around history. Contested history is actually the phrase. And I think it's really important that we do tell a complete history of ourselves warts and all and that nothing is airbrushed out and so I think particularly at the moment around the history of the global majority I think that's something that's really really essential that people engage with but personally I love history and I love the stories in history. Yeah and you worked at the National Archives you mentioned which is this huge repository of I think it's English and Welsh history isn't it spanning about a thousand years of of English and Welsh history I'm interested in what your role was there but I'm also interested in whether that as a national repository you think is recording all history including global majority history of people living in this country or relations with other countries do you feel like they're doing that justice Or do you feel like there's improvements to be made in terms of making sure that we are preserving all histories? So, first of all, I loved working at the National Archives. It was was a really, really interesting place. I actually went to the National Archives on a very short-term contract initially to um, turn around a project that was having difficulties. And so we delivered a project called Fundraising for Archives, which is about fundraising training for archivists and for archive services. And then after that, I stayed on on sort of rolling temporary contracts, really, as an engagement manager for the East of England. Which And I had a vast area to cover, went from the Isle of Wight to Grimsby and from um, Norfolk to Oxford. So it was a huge, a whole East of England. My role there was really to visit archives and to gather intelligence about the challenges that were being experienced by archive services on the ground and also to disseminate like policy information from the National Archives itself. It was a really interesting job and I got to meet some really wonderful people and see some very interesting archives as well. The National Archives itself, I think like a lot of major civic government organisations has been in a situation where it's sort of like had to question itself 
when I was at the National Archives, which was between 2015 and 2017, there was an enormous push to try and explore the histories of the global majorities and the people of colour in the UK. So I wouldn't say that there was any act of suppression or negligence on that part. But I think you have to understand with the National Archives, as with all archives, that there's a lot of history that is buried and a lot of history that needs to be reinterpreted. So, for example, a hundred years ago, the documents that were being gathered, very little of them were actually recorded in a way which actually would allow you to understand that they contained information about people of colour, people from lower socioeconomic groups. But the information is actually there. So it's almost like you need to do a re-sifting of information every every 50 or 100 years so that you can have a look and see if there's any relevant information in them that hasn't been recorded before. Mm, because it's not just important for professional researchers and academics and journalists, but actually there's a huge interest, isn't there, for anyone. Lots of people like to research their own family history genealogy it's referred to as isn't it I mean it's so popular there's even like a tv show isn't it based on you know family history but yeah if you can't find information about your family history you know then that's challenging but yeah it might be there but it's just hasn't been categorized or listed or something like that absolutely so it needs to be available for everybody so you know, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. So it might be that there are lots of records about, for example, factory workers in Lancashire in the 1812s during the Napoleonic Wars. And there probably was. Um, and there probably is, so like lots of records about that. But within those records, where, unless you really, really looked, you wouldn't find so like how many people of colour, how many people from Wales, how many people from Scotland. Although the information is probably there. History is written by the victors, that's definitely a truism, but it isn't necessarily that that everyone else is erased out of history. Sometimes it's just that the only the important things that are recorded are recorded to the people who are in power. So therefore, those bits of information that don't refer to people in power, they aren't easy to find. I think that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. been involved with carnival archives and your phd was about the cultural heritage of british caribbean carnival can you tell us more about these and why is the history of carnival so important to you okay how long have we got (laughs) as long as you want because you'll have to stop me I could talk about this for days, Laura, days. Oh, I love that you're so passionate. Come on, tell us, tell us some, tell us why you love it. So I went to work at the carnival, going back, rolling, rolling back to, remember I started to say, I told you a little bit that I did my degree in librarianship. And as part of my degree, my dissertation was around orality and oral cultures. So how information is passed from person to person, from person to groups, and stored in an oral form as opposed to a literate form. That was my, and I've always been fascinated with orality, always, ever since then. 
And then I started to work at the Carnival Archive Project. I had a marvellous team of people around me. They were truly brilliant and we're still friends. And it was a regional project. So it was across Luton in Bedfordshire, Northampton in Northamptonshire, Norwich in uh, Norfolk and Southend in Essex. So it was across the eastern region. And the project was looking at carnivals. So there are lots of English types of carnivals, but there are also Caribbean carnivals as well. So it's developing a digital archive of all of those places. And when I started talking to the Caribbean carnivalists, talking to them about carnival, talking to them about heritage, asking them for questions, I realised that there in front of my very eyes was an actual living oral culture within a sort of like a literate culture. For me, this was fascinating. But the more I talked to carnivalists about carnival, the more I wanted to know how they got their information, how it was stored, how it was passed to each other, but also why they had the ideas that they did. And one of the things that they said to me, or at least some of the carnivalists said to me, was that carnival had developed in the Caribbean because the enslaved people were imitating their masters. And I just thought, no, they weren't. I knew nothing about carnival, but I knew that that probably wasn't the case, that there had to be more to it than imprints of people imitating other people. So I was very, very fascinated. And I started to look for evidence, I suppose, and information about retained African culture and retained African masquerading practices within Caribbean culture and within Caribbean carnival. And that's how I started. I started looking at carnival on the street and looking for examples of backpacks in the Dogon people of Mali. And I started looking at Mukajombi and and, um, spirit walkers in West Africa. And I started to make these connections and I carried on making these connections and I'm still making these connections now. And so did you demystify that idea that they were imitating their masters? First of all, I have to say that I'm a West African. So to a certain extent, I can only look at this through a West African lens. And so if Caribbean people or some Caribbean people still want to believe that, then that's it. it's their culture and it's their right. But my opinion is that there are elements of creolization, that sort of like Europeanization of African masquerade. Of course there is, because these people were enslaved and their culture was sort of like influenced, heavily influenced by European culture for, for centuries. So, of course, there are elements of European carnival within Caribbean carnival, lots of it. Mm. But there's also still the retention of African Caribbean culture. So I think, in my opinion, I'm quite happy that I've demystified it or that I found evidence of that, that there are pockets of retained African culture within Caribbean carnival and that we can still see in Caribbean culture and Caribbean carnival on the streets in modern Britain. So that, for me, that that's brilliant. But as I say, for me to say that all Caribbean people are wrong in this, then obviously I can't say that because... No. Yeah. And so what were the most interesting or surprising things that you did find out about its origins? I think there's still very much a, a belief that this is the case, that enslaved Africans were so traumatised by the Middle Passage that they completely, they just lost everything. They lost their language, they lost their 
identity. They lost their names. They lost their religious practices. They lost everything. And I think for me, the most interesting thing is, is that you can actually just view funeral rites. You can view, as well as masquerade, you can view words. You can view food practices. You can view all sorts of retained African culture. So for me, that was the most interesting thing. And I went to, um, as part of my doctor, I was very lucky to be able to go to Grenada. So many people, when they study carnival, they study Trinidad because it's huge carnival and carnivals sort of like integrate into every aspect of everyone's life in Trinidad. But I went to Grenada because Grenada is a very African Caribbean island. So I went to Grenada to look at it. I was very lucky. I went to a, a very tiny island called Karaku, where they practice big drum and nation dance, which is fascinating. I've told you I could talk for hours about this. <laughs> Should I carry on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. Yes, please. So big drum and nation dance are how the people on this tiny island defy all other sort of like preconceptions that, the Middle Passage led to total annihilation of African culture in, in enslaved Africans and their descendants, obviously. So on Karaku, people still practice dances, the dances of their enslaved African ancestors, but they do it in a way that actually reflects the nations that they were kidnapped from in Africa. So each descendant of each nation, the Mandinke, the Igbo, goes on, there's 13 of them. They will go in, and the Cremanti, they'll go into a ring and they'll dance their national dance in turn. So what this demonstrates is that not only did they not lose their African understanding of themselves and their African cultural heritage, and African, but they've actually preserved it and it relates to dances in West Africa from the places that their ancestors were enslaved from. And this is still a very, very important part of culture and cultural heritage on Karaku and still takes place. There are lots of examples like that. Really fascinating. It is so fascinating. And what is really interesting to me is that, well, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that it comes from a place of great trauma and loss, but yet it is so, well, it seems so joyful and celebratory. And that's incredible, isn't it? That you take something so awful and traumatic, but you turn it into something that is about self-preservation, I guess, and the preservation of your culture and your heritage that's amazing to me. It's absolutely, it's about resistance, resistance and resilience. So resisting situation of oppression and danger and trauma that you're in and the resilience of actually practicing this to actually renew your own spirit and your will to survive. It, it is absolutely. Through creativity. I mean, that's why we're here talking today as well, isn't it? And you said then, that that's still an important part of carnival today and people will no doubt if they don't know that much about carnival probably have heard of the notting hill carnival because that's probably the most famous carnival and carnival is 
you know, on the face of it, it is so joyful and colourful and celebratory and it's about community. Why do you think the Notting Hill Carnival in particular has gained the status that it has? Why do you think that is so important to people? There's Notting Hill, there's Leeds, there's Northampton, there's Leicester. And Carnival is joyous and celebratory, but Carnival is also an act of remembrance and ancestor worship as well. So it can be quite sad and a lot of traditional masquerade that um, hasn't changed and hasn't become the sort of like feathers and bikinis is, is called fancy mass. The sort of like the jab jabs or like people covering themselves in dark oil and walking around with chains and whips, that's traditional mass. And they're sort of like, and look at John Bay, so like spirit walkers. That's also traditional masquerade. So there's a difference between the type of carnival that we see on the streets. But a lot of it is now seen as sort of like a, a wonderful visibility of black culture as well. So carnival is really, really brilliant. Notting Hill Carnival is really, really important to the people who participate in it for the same reasons that Trinidad Carnival and uh, Spice Mass in Grenada and Crop Over in Barbados as well. They're still, because it's still this act of remembrance, this still sort of like celebration of the turning of the year. It's a huge thing. And the thing about Carnival is that although the Carnival we see is one day or maybe two days on the street, for Carnival people, Carnival is 24-7, 365 days a year. So carnival happens constantly for them. They're thinking about it, designing costumes, thinking about what's happened. So it's very much a way of life. And it's also very often takes part in, um, takes place in groups, very close-knit groups as well. So it's sort of like a, a community as well. It's amazing. And I also wanted to ask you about Carnival in a Box project. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> So Carnival in the Box, that was, yeah, in 2020, when there were no carnivals, it was our sort of like response to that. So we did a project called Carnival in the Box, where we asked carnivalists to send us clips of themselves processing on the road. And we were quite specific that we tried to get as many taken at street level as possible and edited these together. We um, developed some activities creative activities and also we were starting to experiment with um, augmented reality as well so it was a, a huge project which looked at carnival and we called it carnival in a box because as i'm sure most of you remember it was uh, during a time when everything was being delivered in cardboard boxes during the pandemic and also i have to give um, a nod to mark osborne who um, actually coined the phrase carnival in a box when we all worked together at the um, Carnival Archive project. Because his idea was this whole thing of an immersive carnival experience. Mm. And I, I think we still want to do that at some point. But yes, as if you're in a box of carnival. But yes. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, there were lots of really lovely examples of how people from the creative sector reached out to ensure that people could still engage during COVID and during lockdown. And it was amazing for me and I think everybody the realization just how much we needed creativity and we missed creativity during that time wasn't it 
you know aside from her haircut that's the sort of thing that people missed the most wasn't it absolutely obviously family and friends but you know (laughs) (laughs) yes Yes, I think that's why there was so much baking and cooking I started making jam which I'm still doing now uh, during COVID because I think it was that creative outlet learning something new to break up the horrible monotony of being at home Let's talk about your current role, Toller. You are the Arts and Culture Lead for the National Academy of Social Prescribing. Can you tell us what social prescribing is and what the National Academy does? So social prescribing is a way of linking people to non-pharmacological or medical health interventions to address an unmet health need. So we know that A lot of people go to their doctors um, with ailments and illnesses, but the the root cause of these illnesses aren't necessarily medical. So it could be that someone's poorly as a result of loneliness or isolation, poor housing, the stress of debt. All of these things can lead people to becoming quite unwell. But a, a sort of like a medical intervention, a medical way of addressing these problems isn't necessarily the best way. So there are other ways, and that's what social prescribing aims to do, to find a different way of addressing these problems. Yes. And so what role does the National Academy take in trying to create those opportunities? Well, there are a number of ways that National Academy, NASP is how we refer to ourselves. There's a number of ways that we do this, but mainly it's by trying to develop a social prescribing system that makes sure that Social prescribing is embedded in the health sector, but also that the referral pathways to make sure that people are actually able to access social prescribing activities. Right. And so your role is very specifically about arts and culture in that context. So how does that work in practice? How would somebody be prescribed something creative that might benefit their health and also maybe support them in those other areas of their lives that you mentioned? Well, the prescribing or the linking happens via a link worker. Um, Link workers are generally attached to GP surgeries. Um, They might be called a link worker or a health connector or a community buddy or a connector. They have various names depending on, on how they're viewed within particular GP practices or groups of practices, but basically a link worker is the person that the GP will refer someone to, a patient to, and the link worker will then have a conversation or a series of conversations with the patient, uh, which we categorise as a what matters to me conversation. So what's really important to the patient and how can they best be helped? And sometimes this will be by sort of like linking someone or taking them to a heritage group so that they can actually link to a location and develop a sense of place and and belonging or it might be green social prescribing through gardening or walking or walking by the sea or it might be physical activity for example there's a really fantastic project run by my colleague Tracy um, Lyons called More Than a Game which aims to link football supporters to services and this is particularly aimed at men's mental health and men's health or it might be 
arts and culture. So it might be something like dancing for Parkinson's or singing for dementia or singing for depression or for postnatal depression, lots of different things. So the link worker is really the person who will make the suggestions to um, the patient as to what might help them best. I think with the arts and culture, though, we have a little bit of a, a deficit in that there are lots of people, particularly people from challenging socioeconomic backgrounds, who find arts and culture something that they aren't necessarily interested in because it's not something that they would normally do. So the link worker could suggest going to a painting class, but if someone hasn't painted since they left school and they perceive painting as a middle class activity that isn't right for them, then, then they're probably less likely to want to engage with it. However, I think it's really important for us as creative people and as people in this role to ensure that culturally appropriate activities are developed so that more people can benefit from access to arts and culture and social prescribing activities. Yes, and this has come up previously in conversations about, you know, it's great to have this system but you need to have something at the other end of it for people to do. And like you say, it needs to be appropriate. It needs to be things that people are interested in. And crucially, those things need to be funded, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And we are very aware at NASP of the challenges around funding, not just for creative health, but for a lot of the activities that people are being socially prescribed into. So we're trying to address this in a number of ways. So we're looking at the development of a shared investment fund. So this would bring together a variety of funders who would actually put funds into a sort of like a shared pot to support social prescribing activities and social prescribing practitioners to be able to deliver those, which is um, equally as important. And our first sort of like foray, our first development of a shared investment fund is the power of music. Laura, I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but I can tell you a little bit about that if you'd like. Yes, that is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Please tell us about that. So the Power of Music is a fund which has been set up by NASP with support from the Utley Foundation and, and other partners. And the idea for the Power of Music Fund is to provide funding for music and dementia. So music and dementia services, we know that there's lots of very good clinical evidence that when people who suffer from dementia and poor brain health participate in music activities, either singing or listening to music or playing music even, that it, this can alleviate their symptoms of dementia. It's not a cure and it doesn't, it's not long lasting, but it, for the times that people participate in these activities, that symptoms can be alleviated. And in the longer term, it can lead to lower levels of antipsychotic medication needing to be administered as well. So it's all really very positive. Obviously, as you were saying, the funding is a challenge. So with the Power of Music Fund, which will be launched later this autumn, what we'll be doing is offering funding for groups um, and activities at various levels to be able to support their dementia choir and dementia music work for people suffering with dementia and their carers. Because obviously, if the effect is very positive for the person suffering from dementia, it also benefits their carers. And also carers can come along and benefit from the positive 
effects of participating in music activities themselves. So that's the fund, and we're hoping it's going to be really transformative in the ability for uh, people who need access to dementia services. It sounds incredible, and I just it makes my it makes me tingle a little bit, like <laughs> just the power of music is just so amazing, isn't it? And because, you, you know, it's like the soundtrack to our lives music, isn't it? And it, you know, we connect to it in so many different ways, even if we don't play music ourselves. Absolutely. You know, just the power of music to be there for you when you need it, whether you're sad or happy and joyous, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, and it's so great that it's having this really positive effect on people living with dementia and their carers because that's a really tough disease you know to live with isn't it absolutely the fund sounds brilliant how will people be able to find out about it and how will they need to apply for it there'll be lots of publicity about it on the NASP website and also the Utley Foundation website and partner organisations as well. How to apply in the application process will be published very soon. So please look out for that. Great. And we can put the website address of NASP and anything else that you talk about in the show notes so people will be able to go to it from there. So your career is fascinating. I wonder if you would be willing to talk to us about your own personal relationship with creativity for your health and well-being. Has creativity played a role for you in, in supporting you in any way? Absolutely, it has. Um, I think I said earlier that I love culture. I, I work it and I live it and I participate in it. And I love uh, creativity as well. I'm very lucky. And yes, it's very important to my health and well-being. Very important. What sort of things do you do, you do on, in your personal life? Well, I'm a creative writer. So I write um, short stories and poetry. And that's not necessarily for my health and well-being. It's just something that I really love doing. But one very good thing about it is that I do connect with other people. And I'm part of a writer's group and part of a, a sort of like a literary community in my town so that's really great it's a very sociable thing although you might think actually it's a very solitary um, occupation it isn't really for myself I draw and I paint not very well but I do it but the thing that actually I think supports my health and well-being particularly my mental health is embroidery so I embroider a lot and again it's not brilliant but it is something that's entirely for me I'd like to say that I could be an embroidery artist, but I think my output would be so tiny. <laughs> it generally takes me about five or six years to finish a piece of work, but that's because I'm working very slowly and there are no deadlines there. There's no judgment. I don't have to meet any standards. It's something that's just entirely for me and very absorbing. And I find that very, very good for my mental health. I love that. And it doesn't matter, does it, how long it takes or whether you're really proficient in it, because that's what, in this context that we're talking about creativity, that's the important part of it. It's the process, in a way, more than the output that's the important bit. It's really great to get to the end of making something you know, look at it and feel super proud 
of it it's a success and you love it but actually it's the time that it took and what you get from that I think that's really important and a lot of people talk about how mindful it is doing something like that and that it supports mindfulness and just being in that moment and suspending any other absolutely stresses and worries that might be going on in your life absolutely definitely so absolutely it's definitely mindful I think that's a very good way of describing it and it has been for a long time I think I I do need to do something a bit more active though I need to start dancing I think you, you <laughs> could have a kitchen disco that's what we do in our house <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes that's a good idea something like that joining a tap dance or something like tap mm. dancing class or something like that yeah to get me physically active as well and I think this you know what you just said made me think of what you said earlier about how some people don't think art and creativity is for them because they don't think they're very good at it or they've never had a go or you know, somebody else told them they're not very good at it. And it's just trying to get people to understand that that doesn't even matter, really. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to be, you know, exceptional and you're you're not doing it to become a recognized artist or you're not going to get up and perform on stage necessarily. But actually that taking part can just make you feel really, really positive and really good. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes me most sad is that creativity has become so professionalized that the sheer joy of just doing it isn't available if you sing then you have to be able to sing well enough to be able to go on x factor or something as opposed to just being able to sing karaoke down the pub yes or in your car yes that's what that's i do exactly. <laughs> really loudly because yes. no one can hear yes. that's right yes just the sheer joy of doing and i think that that's something that yeah would be good to bring back and i think that sort of like if you can then introduce people to doing something to make them feel better physically or emotionally or mentally then perhaps some of that joy just doing we can reintroduce that that would be really great yeah absolutely that's definitely one of the ambitions that I think that we must have is that arts and culture is essential for health and well-being it's just not nice to have it's essential for health and well-being I think that's a real mindset change we need to introduce totally as well as disseminating all the evidence that there is for arts and culture as well I couldn't agree more I want people to think about creativity as being as important as eating well and being physically active you know I think if you have those three things in your life it's going to do you well or maybe you know better certainly better than if you didn't have those things in your life Oh, Tola, I so appreciate you coming on Creative Health Podcast and telling me your story of your career and what you get up to in your spare time. I've learned a lot from you, especially about the history of carnival, which is really fascinating. And I hope people go and look it up for themselves. So I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful. And uh, about Carnival, if anybody's really interested in reading more, there is a journal called the International Journal of Carnival Arts. And that's got lots of papers written about Carnival. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund.